Welcome to the Working Together Podcast. I'm your host, Stefan Morales, thinker, maker, doer behind Working Together, a burgeoning hub of can-do and know-how, inspired to explore who we are and how we can work together better. I'm fascinated by all the ingredients that you need to really make something happen, to really engage a system and the groups of people within it. And so, on this podcast, you'll hear a lot of stories from folks who've made interesting things happen. Their trials and tribulations, their reflections, their lessons learned, and the actionable advice that they have to share. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. So in this episode of the Working Together podcast, I do a bit of a roundup and a harvest uh, of kind of the best... um, juiciest bits from all of the interviews that I've done over the past few months. And this is the 10th episode. Uh, so basically I'm, I'm kind of thinking I'm going to do this every 10, just do a bit of a rehash of, you know, what, what were some really awesome moments in those interviews that I had with others that I think are worth sharing again and kind of re-articulating and focusing in on those kind of little nuggets of podcast gold. I hope you enjoy it. We kind of go through a number of different loose themes, um, you know, from patterns and tools that you can use in your everyday practice to, uh, you know, the ethos of being a bit of a scientist and experimenting in your work. Um, So without further ado, enjoy it and please reference the show notes if you want to uh, see the episodes that I'm specifically uh, discussing so and I know that we're, we've been talking now for about an hour but I want to wrap it up with a with a question um, kind of for for my listeners uh, who are you know interested in in creating social change and and creating yeah. Um, you know, positive impact in their community. What would you say from from the work that you've done in Revelstoke and and throughout your career uh, is kind of the central uh-huh. lesson that you've that you've gotten from all of this work with partnership building and and kind of you know holding these different uh-huh. groups together around uh-huh. around some really great goals that you've accomplished. Um, locate all the people that you need to get into the room and, and try to get them into the room. Don't don't be afraid of locating uh, or naming folks that should be there that aren't and figure out a way of getting them included. Be really transparent in what you're trying to accomplish with, in terms of your goals. Mm. Um, uh, leave your egos at the door for those of us that had big fancy titles with big fancy salaries. Um, um, talk about uh, talk about the elephant in the room, whatever your elephant may be. So if you've got a lot of programs that seem to be occurring on the very same day in the very same time period, get that on the table and, mm-hmm. and, and look for ways to, to make that change. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are no sacred cows. So if you've got a program that you've been doing for years and you love it and you've got a wonderful person running your program, uh, but you realize it isn't quite the, the type of program that you need for the children that you're trying to serve, be prepared to you know, make those changes to that program and uh, adequately survey. uh, And I don't mean a survey like in a paper survey, whatever you're using for survey, uh, you know, focus groups, uh, you know, whatever, but adequately survey uh, your um, parents to find out what it is they need. Mm -hmm. Listen Um, listen to the people that you're trying to serve. Listen to the people. Um, 
when you're when you're working together, get everything that's a burning issue out on the table in the room. Uh, lose the parking lot conversations and the pre-emails and the post-emails to a meeting. Um, uh, we've been we generally are pretty successful at that, but you've always mm. got to be vigilant. Where you know, go to go to a meeting, say what's on your mind. Uh, uh, be polite and but you know but get out what your concern is don't go to a meeting and give lip service to what's being said and then whip out into the parking lot and find the one person that you think you can trust and say oh was that ever an awful meeting they never dealt with this they never dealt with that this is how i really feel don't right. do that lose the, lose the parking lot Interesting. Um, yeah. um, and um I, like I think that you also have, that's good. That's, that's, that's yeah. Amazing. That's that's a huge that's a that's a huge one for everything, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and have a plan. I think do the work necessary to have you know like we've got a really good you know strategic plan. We keep it current. Um, have a plan, and I guess the the best advice is it, it it is it does it does take some time and it does take some work. So make sure that. You're contributing something so that you've got the capacity to do the work. If if you if you need a you know if you need a coordinator for for your committee or for your group, uh, and if they can't do it off the side of their desk, you then figure out a way that you spend a few dollars on getting some coordination. If you mm -hmm. if you if you need minutes recorded and somebody can do it off the side of your desk. Uh, that's great, but if you can't, you know, then find a way of getting those um, those key elements of any endeavor under control. I mean, you need coordination, you need you know, you need minutes, you need a little bit of marketing, no, you know, you need communication. Figure out how you're going to get that stuff done, so that you actually are getting stuff done in between meetings. Because nobody wants to go to a meeting where you're talking about the same thing month in, month out, nine months later. You're still talking about doing something that somebody said needed to be done in the first month if you're making no progress from month to month no one will want to stay uh, you know working in that endeavor on that committee you know mm -hmm. it, it, it'll just be a big waste of time so commit to making some progress and if even if it's a small amount of progress just make some kind of progress because that actually i think really um uh, stimulates people to do more <laughs> This one is kind of more for uh, young professionals who work within organizations who are trying to implement things. Um, you know, so you, you have all these resources out there, whether they're kind of available or or or, or not. You know, and we've got the we got the one. If you're lucky enough to find the tools for leadership and learning, building a learning organization, that little that little flip book. Um, but if you're not lucky enough to find that, as you say, it's in your new book. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could maybe just talk a little bit about your new book and how you would, um, how you would have somebody who's a new public servant or a young public servant implement some of these ideas in their workplace. What are some of the challenges that you've, that you've experienced and what kind of lessons would you like to share with folks on how to overcome them? Well, the, the first thing that I would, I've always said to, to a young person, somebody said, what's the best piece of advice you could give a young person? And I said, get off your knees. And what I meant by that was, in my generation, we would come up, you know, a young person would come up with a, what they thought or felt is a great idea. 
And then they, they are pitching it to the boss. If they get an audience with the boss, they pitch the idea. And the poor boss has just been pitched, uh, you know, 13 things that day already that he's going to say yes or no to. And, <laughs> and Right? And so he's like yeah. looking at the kid like, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. So I'm saying stop pitching stuff. Stop going in on your knees and asking for permission to do this or for a yes or a no or putting always putting the bosses in a, a, a situation where they're making a decision about you. Mm. And instead, do this. So, you know, you um, you walk in and you say, uh, thanks for seeing me. Uh, I've been reading the strategic plan, and I realized that we, we have a uh, – and by the way, I just want to say before I, I, I say this, Margaret Wheatley's definition of leadership, four words, how can I help? And mm. that's the single, the single mom with three kids who – goes to a girl guy meeting, she's already got two jobs, and, and she turns around after the meeting and says, excuse me, how can I help? That's somebody stepping into leadership. Mm. So what you do as a young person is you you walk in and you say, I, I noticed that we said we were gonna do this by October 15th, the deadline is coming, and I don't think we've really got it done. And uh, the manager says, yes, like, it does seem to be a problem. And then you say, how can I help? And, right? Yeah. And the manager says, well, I don't know. What do you got? Well, I actually learned a tool the other day, and I thought maybe we could, you know, we could we could go and have a session and a workout on this, and, I, I, you know, I could maybe lead a workout. And so what you, I guess what I'm trying to say is that your best bet these days is not to go with answers, mm. but to go to go – with possibilities. How can I, you know, and, and, and to be an offer, not to be an answer. You're right. not an answer. You're, and, and, and a lot of young people get mad. I, I had this great idea and I, I went to see him and I, he, you know, I didn't get anything. Well, no, but stop, stop going in as an answer and start going in as an offer. Hmm. And, and I think that would be the best piece of advice I would give people. And the, the second piece of advice is, you can't be an offer if you got nothing. So you better find a practice. You better find something that you got a passion about that's not about your job, but it's about fixing things. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and so you become a you know become a coaching practitioner, a facilitator, an engagement practitioner, a, you know, a social media, whatever. Find your practice, and you will then find that you can be an offer because I can offer you these tools. I can offer you this skill. So I guess that's that's, great. that's what I that's what I would say to a young person is find out how you're going to be the best offer ever, not the best answer. So the last two pieces there with Ann Cooper and with Bob Chartier, uh, those pieces are really kind of about some tools and practices that you can start uh, using today or tomorrow. This is stuff that you can start playing around with in your everyday work it's very easy to pull off well it's not easy to pull off but it's easy to start implementing it and practicing and getting better at the next piece where i speak with chris corrigan we talk a bit about uh the open space uh, method which is kind of a bit more of a unique thing that you would be using only in um, certain circumstances where you're bringing a large group of people together over a number of days so it's kind of a more special thing but it's really interesting um and uh and we also talk a bit about 
circles and the power of storytelling within circles and kind of, you know, the, I guess the, the long history that we humans have doing such things like that, sitting in circles around campfires and, and sharing stories and just how impactful that is for, um, for the work that we do together and creating dialogue together and having meaningful conversations together. So without further ado, Chris Corrigan. there a few minutes ago you mentioned a whole bunch of different tools really quickly and each one could be an episode uh on its own and i'd, I'd like that sure. to be the case one day uh find some other people to talk to about all those different fancy interesting and totally amazing tools so you mentioned open space you mentioned yeah um i think you mentioned appreciative inquiry sure. uh uh, quite a f- quite a few different things that you started experimenting with. So what what did that period of your of your work look like, and and how how are you bumping into these new ideas and new approaches? Right. Well, I think in 1995. I mean, here here I've been kind of like running down the International Association of Public Participation a little bit, but the truth of it is that in 1995 they had their annual meeting in uh, Whistler. They were called IAT3 at the time, mm-hmm. and they spent a whole day of that three-day conference in open space. And that was the first time I'd ever encountered the, the, the technique. And there were 400 people in the room. So it was a, a real a real brave uh, thing to do. And, mm-hmm. and unbeknownst to me at the time, the people that were in the room holding space were quite incredible. Um, people who've since become friends, and, and uh, like Ann Stadler, uh, who, was, who, along with Harrison Owen, was really one of the, the founding uh, forces mm-hmm. behind open space. But... Um, and so she was one of the people opening space that day. And so it was partly done as a way because it's a great way to run a conference. The moment we, we, we sat before, you know, you know, you know, open space, we sit the 400 people in a circle, a couple of concentric circles, and we create the agenda for the breakout sessions in real time. So we have, we have a whole Whistler convention center. We've got a million different breakouts. We've got three or four time periods over the course of the day. And we've got a bank of computers that somebody set up so we can all come and type up our notes and the elegance and simplicity of the design was striking. Okay, wait. And the wait. moment I re- Bef- yeah. before you go too far along, because I sure. I have an idea about what open space looks like, but my right. listeners, they could you know if if you could kind of get a little more detailed on what that looks like, uh, that that would be sure. helpful. Yeah. Sure. So you know it 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 looks like every other conference you've ever been to. Mm-hmm. And that you start in a plenary and you finish in a plenary and you have breakout sessions. The only difference from every other conference you've ever been to is that the breakout sessions aren't predetermined. So it allows space for the participants themselves to create the topics that they want to engage in. And it allows for anybody in the conference to either post a topic or go along to any of the topics that are interesting to them. And it puts the responsibility for taking, keeping records and uh, for running the conversations and mm-hmm. keeping records in the hands of the conveners uh, who are completely capable of doing it because human beings, it turns out, have been conversing with each other and taking <laughs> notes for a yeah. long time. We're good at it. You don't actually need to appoint one facilitator and note taker for every, all the, you know, you, humans can do this. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and the facilitator spends about 15 minutes introducing the, the process, introducing the, the basic principles of open space, uh, how the day will work, and then lets people go to work. And then at the end of the day, we come back together and, and share a few reflections. And while that's happening, somebody else is photocopying all the all the reports that have been written, and everybody leaves with a copy of the, the, the conference sessions in hand. It's brilliant, simple, powerful. Um, Harrison Owen, who developed it, claims it's a two-martini idea. Um, there's a great story around that. But basically, it's that simple. It's turning the conference inside out so the whole thing has the energy of a coffee break where people are engaged in the conversations they want to be engaged in. And it works great for conferences, and it works great for doing strategic planning, when you just don't know what needs to be in the plan, when you just don't know what the conversations are that people need to have, it's a great networking tool. Mm -hmm. I mean, the same basic framework is applicable in almost any imaginable conversation, except for the ones where you already know what the answers are and you already know what you're going to do. Uh, if, you know, if you know what that is, then just go ahead and do things. But if you really do have a bunch of people coming together and you don't know what interests them and you don't know what they're capable of, then... To me, open space is a beautiful process for allowing them to unleash their collective creativity. So, you know, I didn't know such a thing as open space existed. It was it was kind of codified in the early 80s by Harrison, who wrote the first user's guide, I think, about 1985. But, um, you know, I had, I had no idea about it and uh, experienced it for the first time. And I just had this strong sensation that I had come home, that this was exactly how I believed communities and organizations and people were capable of working, mm -hmm. and that this unleashed a whole bunch of ideas in me, both as in terms of what groups are capable of, but also what the role of the facilitator is. Because what I noticed was Anne Statler opening space mm -hmm. for 15 minutes, and then I never saw her again for the rest of the day. And an entire conference was self-organized and run by 400 people together, with no previous instruction other than four basic principles that she gave and a couple of simple instructions. Mm -hmm. And and so the role of the facilitator then, you know, you start questioning, like, okay, like it feels like we're working a bit hard here. If, if people are capable of this level of work, uh, and the preconditions, you know, I mean, it, it requires some preconditions to be in place, some pre-work in place to be able to get people into a room where they're curious and activated like that. But if you get them into a room like that, what else do you have to do except get out of their way? Mm-hmm. So I started, that open space was the first thing I discovered and the first of these methods I discovered. And I didn't know there were other, in fact, some of the others hadn't been invented by then. But uh, but this was, this was uh, you know, in 1995, and I, I found a couple of applications of open space in the federal government work I was doing. And so I, I proposed using it as an experiment. Um, and the regional advisory committees we were working with wanted to go along with it. And we had a couple of a couple of amazing open spaces, and we had one incredibly disastrous one, which <laughs> is a kind of funny story. But uh, maybe I can go back to it. It's kind of funny. But but we ran these experiments just so I could see how it worked, right? And, and it worked, you know, great. It worked great. Even the disastrous one where 75% of the people left, the 25% of the people that were left had a great time. So, you know, in that sense, it was perfect. But what we ended up, what, what ended up happening uh, was that I, I started really tapping the expertise of the open space facilitators network, the community network, uh, who were very generous with their time and being able to answer my questions and 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 so on. And I realized at, that at some level, at the heart of this community of practice was actually a gift economy, and that was that was true of both the facilitators I was working with, and it was also true 
of the people that showed up in open space that I realized what was going on in open space was people were giving gifts to each other all the time. Hmm. They were contributing space, ideas, time. I mean, the, the value of exchange, if you were to put a monetary value on it in an open space meeting, is immense. The amount of value that's exchanged mm-hmm. in a short period of time, whether it's over a couple of hours or a day. Because people aren't sitting on their hands. They're not sitting there on their ideas. They're, they're chucking them into the middle of the marketplace. They're having things worked on and, and worked through and rejected and tightened up and pulled to pieces. I mean, the whole, the whole process can be very, very powerful and, and transformative. And so, uh, so that's what led me kind of into it. So it was open, open space was really, was really the first one then. And, and it, and it set me off on this, on this inquiry, both about the kinds of methods that would be useful for dealing with complex problems. Mm-hmm. which open space fits into. And dialogue in general is is what we need in a complex space. And then it also, also focused me on thinking about what's the role of the facilitator then. So in a way, it sounds like, you know, based on where you started with your work, which was this this interesting moment of, uh, of the circle, um, mm-hmm. you're, you're coming back again to the circle in a sense, like with, with the work that was... <laughs> That happens in circles. It does, yeah. <laughs> it yes, does. I mean, it's like... Recursive the, the, structures it, all around. Yeah, recursion. Yeah, turtles all the way down. Like, I, I have a yeah recursion alert. Oh, no. You know, when, whenever I issue the warning that there's a recursion alert, I know that we're actually dealing with a legitimate living system. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've always come back. I mean, it's never left the circle. The circle is the center. It's kind of the mother mm-hmm. practice of all of this work. It's the most ancient human way of organizing, you know. My friend Christina Baldwin, who, along with her partner Anne Linnea, created a body of work called the Circle Way, um, <clears throat> says that uh, you know for most of the last million years, our survival has depended on getting to a fire. Mm-hmm. Right? And when you get to a fire, you the only way to share a fire equally is to stand around it. And if I'm going to share my fire with you, I hope you're bringing something to eat or a story that will help us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and uh, and that's how we've evolved as humans. You know, we're we're you know some have said that we're we should be known as human narans because uh, we've gathered around fires and told our stories for an awfully long time. It's the way we make sense of the world that isn't easy to understand, and the way we check it out with each other. So the circle is the for me it's the source process of all of the work I do. Uh, even if I'm not actually putting people physically in a circle, um, it's it's nevertheless yeah it's at the core of everything. So those last uh, those last three that you heard were really kind of um, you know these patterns and tools for for doing things with with groups of people whether you're creating partnerships or you're trying to um, trying to get some sort of innovative uh, process or practice in place in the organization you work for or you know if you're just trying to create interesting gatherings of people having dialogue together. Um, interesting little patterns and tools there that you can use. The next uh, batch of three um, segments that I've curated together are really kind of, they're all about design for cooperative living and working and kind of tensions that happen in those spaces. Um, And design all the way from actual architectural design to the kind of design considerations you need to have when you're running 
a more cooperative organization or when you're running a more um, deliberative democratic process. So, uh, you know, I'll talk with David Leach in one part, with Joshua Vile in another part, and then with Peter McLeod in another part. So those are coming up next. So maybe, maybe say a little bit more about this built environment. Because you've mentioned it a few times now. I feel like it's a red thread that's running through your book, but it's also running through your interest in the kibbutz and in the region. And there's something going on here for you with architecture and power and community and all these things. Maybe you could touch on that a little bit or riff on it. Sure, absolutely. No, I'd love to. And that's, I think, what I... When I returned to the kibbutz, I was immediately struck by and I realized what had affected me most, having kind of grown up in, again, sort of the deep suburbs of, of yeah. Ottawa, which was it was like a wonderful childhood to kind of explore and safe and all of that. Uh, but I remember kind of <clears throat> coming back from Kibbutz Shamir in which you couldn't like walk for 30 seconds with oh, bumping into somebody, having a conversation, mm. and there was all of these spaces, whether it was a sports hall, or which was used for movies, or, or sports, or the swimming mm. pool, or the pub, or the dining room, or the grocery store, all of these places where you were constantly bumping into other people, and, and kind of uh, getting yourself knit within the community. Come back home to uh, my parents' house in uh suburban Ottawa, uh, I'm, I'm home, uh, getting ready to head back to school, uh, during the day, it's like a neutron bomb's gone off. There's nobody there. Mm-hmm. Kids are in school or off at camps. Everybody's kind of driven into the, the city. Uh, there's no shops or anything. Uh, and I remember kind of walking through, seeing nobody as I kind of walked around the neighborhood and crossing somebody's kind of corner of lawn and hearing this shout from behind, behind a screen door, like, get off the grass! That was my one kind of <laughs> moment of kind of human <laughs> connection. I realized, oh, something's wrong here. Oh, a lot man. of it has to do with this built environment, mm. how this these kind of neighborhoods had been set up almost to, to to so your house really kind of faces backward into your yard. Mm-hmm. Everything's designed for for cars and for the cars to get around and, and not for pedestrians. And it was the exact opposite, I realized, of what I had experienced on the kibbutz mm-hmm. and that I was all nostalgic for and, and for years was kind of nostalgic for, even though I didn't. Uh, realize it that very much that human scale um, community where everything was kind of built to accommodate uh, people walking to different places where they could be together. Hmm. Uh, and they were very conscious of that, that they, the dining hall, that the hub could not be more than 10 minutes walk from anybody's house mm-hmm. because that might mean they wouldn't come to, yeah. to meetings. But also that, uh, mm-hmm. it, and they were very influenced um, uh, by the whole Garden City movement, right. the kind of notion mm-hmm. of, of integrating green space. Uh, and and communal facilities, but also workspaces as well. So where there was a, a hemisphere or a half of the kibbutz where you have all the work places, so you could gonna walk to work and then walk mm. back to lunch and then walk over to uh, have a swim and and bump into so and so and have a drink. Uh, and it, uh, it really 
influenced how I kind of came back to North America and sort of saw the world through those eyes and thought, well, why not? Why not here? Mm-hmm. I mean, and you see it in these ideas around new urbanism mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, um, active transportation, uh, but how do you kind of impose that vision on an urban infrastructure that for like 50 years has been devoted to getting cars to move around mm-hmm. more quickly? Yeah. Uh, a lot of this a lot of this stuff that you realized about space, um, you know, how, how we inhabit it as a community. I mean, I think, I think for tons of people living in North America and in any kind of urban setting that's been developed, um, you know, after, after the second world war, basically around the automobile, like so many people have this deep sense of, you know, longing for a, like, I guess what you would call the human scale, experience of neighborhood of community of of household and all this um so what kind of what kind of lessons do you feel there are if any from you know from what you study and saw in the kibbutz and 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 what we can do in our urban communities and in our suburban communities today that seem so um cut off from one another in, in many respects and distanced from one another and then on the other hand, um, the whole history of the kibbutz movement is one of, um, it's, it's a story of migration, right? It's a story of settlement. Um, it's a story of some people welcoming others and some people not. And the kind of tensions that, that happen around that. And so that would be the, the other kind of group of lessons that I think is really, you know, as far as the crises with with refugees and and migrants and stuff today, and the you know the use of that issue by right wing politicians to kind of garner support and fear and all of this stuff. You know, I'm wondering what kind of lessons we can take from from the kibbutz movement on that front. Those are excellent questions. Uh, I don't know if I've got uh, the one answer, but they've, they've certainly been the questions that have occupied uh, my imagination for years and mm-hmm. really kind of seeded by my experiences in, in the kibbutz and then kind of revived by uh, the visits uh, to different kibbutzim and talking to kind of the people uh, uh, about uh, their people who've lived in these communities for years, mm-hmm. for kind of decades, who have lived communally, which is uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. And obviously something that I've uh, never done. Uh, so in terms of the built environment, one of the things that kind of struck me, and I sometimes get this, that people get confused between the words kibbutz and kibitz. And they're actually unrelated mm-hmm. etymologically in kibbutz. It means a gathering in Hebrew and came to mean these settlements. Kibitz is actually an old Yiddish word that I think originally meant to be like an annoying observer in a card game, and, but it really means to, uh, to it, ultimately it's become less navigative and it's more about conversation. But I think the, the lesson I realized is that to be a good kibbutznik, you had to be a good kibitzer. And mm. to be a good member of community, you have to have build these kind of conversational connections between your neighbors, between the, the people around you, mm. and that a good built environment 
uh, whether it's the size of a kibbutz, which they range from anywhere from 80 people to 2,000 people, uh, to even just a street or a, a neighborhood, has to really um, accent or what I uh, what I described as the KQ, your kibitz quotient, the opportunities mm. to have random encounters with either stra- uh, strangers or friends and just kind of a stop and talk. And those are the things that kind of mm. uh, build community and, and those kind of strengthen community for when you have to make kind of tough decisions or you have to make mm. uh, change. And again, the kibitz was very, very kind of clear about the importance of kind of embedding this into their built environment and maintaining these spaces, what, what sociologist Ray Oldenburg often describes as the third places, mm. the places that are not work and not home, but are, are kind of more amorphous, open places where you can bump into each other and have a drink or get your hair cut mm. or, or whatnot and, and uh, feel an opportunity to connect. So the importance to kind of create those places uh, and and kind of uh, save those spaces and preserve those spaces because I really kind of feel uh, that that automobile culture in particular, in which you kind of live in a box and drive mm-hmm. around in mm-hmm. a box into another box, it disconnects you from that mm-hmm. experience. You don't have those conversations, and I, I think we kind of risk some of that with with um, the internet and mm-hmm. smartphones, though I'm a little less kind of dystopian about that than, than some people are. I think there are kind of connections and opportunity mm-hmm. for virtual communities yes, yeah. to get us to reflect around the community. Also, yeah, I think about the kind of question of scale and, and uh, that notion that small is beautiful and, and kind of uh, knowing who your community is. I heard that from a number of uh, kibbutzniks, especially in the urban communes as well, that it was kind of less important what their ideology was, what their vision was, but, but uh, who their neighbors were, who mm-hmm. they were in this project uh, uh, together and that knowing that they uh, care for each other. Uh, and looked out for each other, and there, that sense of empathy with a larger world uh, came out of that. Having said all that, uh, I think there's a bigger kind of lesson, maybe even for kind of Canadians. I mean, I've given a couple of talks about what you can learn about the kibbutz movement. I remember giving one at uh, UVic, uh, and then at the end of it, when we were going to have like a good discussion, just like we've been having about about built environments, uh, somebody had been passing out kind of. Uh, pamphlets, and she stood up and said, "Well, are you going to talk about how kibbutzes were built in the blood of the Palestinian people?" Of course, at that point, the whole thing kind of blew up, and people mm-hmm. were shouting at about, and and I couldn't talk about the lessons, but there was uh, even in that provocation a legitimate point mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. the kibbutz was a settlement project. It was also a colonial project as well, and and it was, uh, it was sold to kibbutzniks as a a land without a people for a people without a land, which was only half true. And mm-hmm. Many of these kibbutzes ultimately uh, displaced uh, Palestinians or were uh, later built on land taken from uh, Palestinians who had fled or were displaced in 1948. 
And that's something that the kibbutz movement has to kind of reckon with mm-hmm. and has tried, or certain communities have tried to. And I think there's something there for kind of Canadians to think about as well. And it kind of forced me to think about that, that we too are settlers here on land that is not truly our own. Mm-hmm. And how do we, what is the responsibility uh, that goes with that when we talk about things like community? Uh, what were the communities that were on this place before? And what can we learn from uh, them? And how do we kind of respect that heritage? So I think those would be the, the big lessons mm-hmm. that uh, I learned from, yeah, the very kind of fascinating, complex, often contradictory history of the kibbutz movement, yet I still find inspiring because these were people who kind of heard this call of utopia and decided to kind of take it from an idea and try and make it a reality. And that's always going to be a messy thing, but it's it's kind of more interesting than that kind of that traditional road that most of us take. deal with that that tension between you know letting somebody pursue their own project on the one hand and giving them their full reign and then also figuring out how to collaborate and kind of come together as a group around certain things i think that there's there's something interesting in organizations around tension and that that just as you named them the value that we've got a very conscious set of values where one of the things we value very deeply is individual freedom if you have an idea, you should just be able to pursue that idea and mm-hmm. not ask permission or have to get the consent of lots of people to do that. On the other hand, we really deeply value collective action, that if we agree on some things which everyone sort of commits to, we'll be able to do more together. And they're in complete tension with each other. Mm. The, more you, the more you value collective action, then the less freedom you can have. And it is a very clear trade-off in lots of ways. And the processes you need that work for freedom are the processes you need for collective action cultural processes or financial ones or social ones. And so the, the, both of them are equally valuable in a way. And mm-hmm. so how do you balance them? It's just a continual discussion, a case of always looking and measuring and saying, okay, we value both of these things. How does this, how does this idea, this initiative or this suggestion um, affect both of them? Will it limit people's freedom? If so, is that limitation worth the upside? Will it... Um, limit our collective action and pull us in different directions? And if so, is the the diffusion of purpose or the diffusion of, of shared DNA um, healthy or unhealthy? And it's just, and there's no rule. It's just a, the question's the only thing. I think that's a, um, the, the how, how we do that in practice is really just about conversations and asking those questions. It's very, um, a lot of us who work on the design of our processes and the design of Inspiral are often thinking about what will this what will this process impact have on individual freedom. Mm-hmm. So an example of this would be um, the process of how does someone join in Spiral is that oh, for someone to become a contributor, it just takes one member to think, yes, that person should be a contributor. So there's a lot of autonomy there. There's a lot of freedom. But then you can also have a whole bunch of people who don't know each other or aren't good fits or that kind of thing. So then the process of how someone becomes a member 
is sort of the opposite. It's a complementary one of actually you need all the members to consent to this person becoming a member. And it's the balance of those two where you start to form a stability or a stable structure or a stable process. Hmm. And that these two complementary processes are like two sides of a coin where they tug you each they tug in different directions, but the balance between the two creates some kind of harmony. the problem is is really what mass lvp does in the work that that you guys that you guys have done you you've done 27 uh citizens reference panels is that correct or at least that's how many i saw on the web page when i was <laughs> looking at it earlier today yeah you know we're, we're gonna crest over 30 this year uh and there have now been um about a thousand canadians who've participated in these deliberative processes uh, and we've mailed about 300,000 households inviting uh, citizens in uh, to these processes. And the funny thing about them is that we're doing everything that um, the kind of standard way of doing business suggests uh, won't work or isn't possible. You can't get people out for a one-hour evening meeting. We ask people to give us four, six, eight days of their time. Uh, but we've learned... Um, that you know, people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves, more than just having a say. They're looking for an opportunity to serve. And it's not everybody all the time. But on balance, people at different points in their lives for very different circumstances will will say yes. We'll say that they this is mm-hmm. they, they want to give something back. Um, the way we describe it sometimes is the difference between tapping into the kind of survey taking <laughs> ability of people and the barn raising ability of people. And, you know, people who have a good sense of the value of their time um, and they have a good sense of the value of any survey. <laughs> um, but that's just indicating preferences. Mm-hmm. That's not about problem solving. And when we actually share out the problems of government and policymaking with people in a way that's intelligible to them, then they're much more prepared to roll up their sleeves and be, quote-unquote, part of the solution. And that, I think, is a not the only role for citizens to play, but I think it's an important and um, under-recognized role. And so maybe for our listeners, you could kind of describe a bit of your process of how you guys come to this successful moment at the end, almost reverse engineer it for me. You At the end, you have a citizen's reference panel that has put together recommendations after, you know, you know six to eight days or longer uh, of right. deliberation and, and work together. So how, how does the process work? How do you go from the start to the finish? Well, you know, just for the, the benefit of your listeners, I think one of the things that we have a, a tendency to do um, as a, as a, as if, if, if people who focus on public engagement can consider themselves a sector is that we just kind of confuse it with very specialized terminology. So whether it's a citizen's assembly or a citizen jury or a reference panel, mm-hmm. um, 
uh, or any other name, you know, there there is a kind of um, uh, common. There's some distinctions, but we can focus on what's common amongst them. Um, and and the connection I want to make is not actually even to the citizens' assemblies and the idea of any of this being so innovative, um, because its closest parallel, in fact, is to one of the oldest democratic processes, um, frequently, you know, forgotten, uh, not well studied, um, but it's the work of coroner's juries. Hmm. So everyone is familiar with the idea of a courtroom jury, and uh, in a courtroom, it's an adversarial contest between an, uh, an accuser and an accused. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a coroner's jury, it's a non-adversarial process where counsel is there to help the jury understand and examine a range of material. And so they'll call, of course, witnesses. Uh, and there isn't a finding of guilt or innocence Instead, coroner's juries issue reports that contain recommendations. Now, we've been doing this. And is this coroner <laughs> or coroner? I'm con- a coroner. Coroner. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so this is like a coroner's inquest where mm-hmm. there is a jury yes. uh, that is impaneled. And, you know, there's a long and interesting history about how coroner's juries came to be and their evolution in Britain and in Canada. But the point is that nothing that we're doing with reference panels or citizen juries uh, is is all that different. Um, so how do we get to the report and the recommendations? Well, um, you know, first you have to bring together a group of people. And, you know, as we like to say, you'll never walk by a courthouse that's running a traditional jury and see a sandwich board outside that says murder trial this afternoon jurors wanted. Mm-hmm. That would be nuts, right? <laughs> because we know the people who would line up, yeah. right? Uh, so we have, as a society, become more sophisticated about this. Now, we compel people to serve on our criminal juries. We don't compel them to serve on our policy juries. We invite them, and we frame it as a matter of public service. So uh, we send out typically five or 10,000 letters to randomly selected households. We've done this in BC, and we've done it in Vancouver, and we're currently doing it in uh, Duncan, North Couch, uh, where we um, uh, invite people to volunteer. And typically we have a 3 to 7% response rate depending on the topic and the time of year and how many meetings are, are um, uh, scheduled in the program. Uh, from amongst those people who volunteer, we then randomly select typically 36 people. It's done in such a way as to broadly match the demographic profile. So it's half men, it's half women, it's stratified by age. Um, it uh, will also be uh, broken out by a geographic um, area, uh, and there may be other attributes. So if we were doing a project about housing policy, we would see that a proportionate number own versus rent. If we're doing it about transit, proportionate number drive cars versus walk versus take public transit. Mm. And we then um, 
randomly bundle those attributes and select from amongst the volunteers blindly uh, the people who have from amongst those who have volunteered. We think more like adult educators than facilitators because while the civic lottery process is going on, we then have to create a curriculum and we have to use great care uh, often relying on advisory committees of very senior academics or policymakers, respected individuals with command and authority in their fields, uh, to create a program that would allow someone coming in, regardless of what prior knowledge um, or educational attainment they might have, to get the basics and build from there. And we think in terms of process knowledge, someone understanding how this process will work and what their mm-hmm. role is in it, uh, which, is, which is significant uh, and is often overlooked. But then we have to think about the um, uh, uh, program or the subject knowledge. Uh, and so then we'll invite in um, different experts, uh, different stakeholders, Processes like this are often criticized for being, well, it's about the 36 people, but it excludes everybody else. Well, oftentimes, those stakeholder membership organizations, they need to have standing in these processes. So they can be presenters. They can organize um, shoulder meetings or or um, parallel activities. We often have what are called public roundtable meetings in the midst of a uh, reference panel process where members of the panel then go and host uh, public meetings. So now it's citizens talking to citizens. In any event, over the course of the four or six Saturdays, uh, they move through um, a program that, broadly speaking, emphasizes kind of information and context at the beginning and then flips to being entirely deliberative by the end. And we start by talking about values. And then we get more specific talking about issues. And from amongst those issues, we'll identify priorities. And having established those priorities, then we draft recommendations that we think can satisfy those priorities. And as a consensus or a process, um, you know, not everyone needs to agree. Uh, but um, we look for a strong and overwhelming majority of support for any of the recommendations. And the panel actually writes the report itself and continues to edit it online after the program is complete. Hmm. Any member of, an, of a panel can also write what we call a minority report, which is an important safety valve, where they know from the first day that if there was something they didn't like about me or, or the process or the government client or the recommendations, they can, they can say so and it won't be edited by anyone. So that's an important measure of accountability as well. Anyway, there are lots of other components of it, but in, in broad strokes, that's how it works. Now, there are different ways to do it. How many roundtable meetings you have? Do you do them before, during, or after the process? How do you sequence the reference panel into the midst of a, you know, a larger policy architecture? Um, you know, What role do elected officials or senior uh, managers or you know, uh, agency boards play, um, who has standing in the conversation, what is the role of advisors. There are lots of different ways to um, design and articulate different facets and strengths of the process. And we've had the chance to t- try quite a range. Mm-hmm. But but fundamentally, we, we've, 
we've we've really we've been we've been pretty constant about the core attributes of it because they're based i think on some very sound principles that actually you can't deviate from So yeah, those last three um, segments that I put together there were were interesting examples of um, you know some kind of design principles and design considerations around cooperative living and working. Whether you're um, actually trying to live in a community together, as the as the, um, the kibbutzers were, uh, and you know designing the space itself, but also thinking about how you how you approach uh, people in that space as well so kind of your comportment this kibitzing idea which is great um, and then the other two kind of going more into um, you know contemporary uh, examples of um, cooperation and organizations as it was within spiral or uh, with mass LBP's example of how they design their deliberative democratic processes which are very interesting the next batch the final two are really all about kind of um you know the attitude or the disposition that you take towards trying things out and being a bit of a mad scientist about the experiments that you're doing um, and uh, not being afraid to try again and again, even though you might be failing many times. So um, as part of that, I've got Joshua Vile again talking about some of, uh, you know, some of the advice that he gave me at the end of that episode. Um, and then also Mark Fraunfelder um, giving me some, uh, some sage advice as well about experimenting and... Um, not being afraid of failure. So I hope you enjoy these last two segments. What book has influenced you the most and your approach to your work and why? One, um... I'd say that one of the biggest would have been, oh, Good for Great, Maverick, and Here Comes Everybody. So that's three books. Um, so Good to Great was basically Jim Collins, and it was just the story of organizations. And like, oh, actually, there's all these organizations, and you can copy pieces from all of them. That was something I got there. Hmm. Maverick was treat people like adults instead of like children, that people fit the container, social container they put in. And that if I'm in a system which encourages childlike behavior, I'll behave like a child. Mm. If I'm in a system that encourages adult-like behavior, I'll behave like an adult. And that it's as much the system as the individual, that often we attribute it to the individual. Um, and here comes everybody was just the idea that in the cost of, trans of when technology changes, the way we organize can change dramatically. And that there's this vast opportunity space which is before us, which has never been there before because of our technology in terms of the way we organize. So there's three. That's good. That's good. Okay, here's a follow-up question to it. 
if you were to write a 5,000 word paper on the three books, what would your central thesis be? Uh, open source your business. And if you share everything you're learning about organizing with technology, and if you copy other people who are sharing what they're thinking, we could speed up the pace of innovation in this whole sector so that we can start to see the pace, start to match the pace of innovation we're seeing with technology. And I think that open sourcing our business practices and actively building community around them, we can see an explosion of innovation hmm. in the terms of how we organize. So for anyone who might be on the fence about trying something out, like, like what you guys have done with Inspiral, what would you tell them? Uh, make small bets and decide for yourself. So whenever there's something new, like making a, you know, betting the company on it or betting something with a significant outcome on it um, isn't the way to go. It's a case of look at an opportunity to try out the thing which interests you in the smallest, safest way, give it space to be a valid experiment and just measure the results and realize that every situation is different. So just because something works for someone else doesn't mean it's a good fit. And that's, uh, that's the main thing. It's just And just... Keep trying it. Just because you tried one thing and it didn't work doesn't mean to stop. And I think that consciously putting yourself in the persona of an experimenter, a scientist who's researching possibilities, means that, and when you research something, publish it, share it with others. And I think then you start to really, you know, see yourself and see if it works. anyone on the fence about jumping into making uh, and kind of the DIY side of things that you are so passionate about, what would you tell them to tip them over the fence? You know, I would say to get involved, to, to not just make for the sake of, of making, even though there are rewards for that, make something that's going to make a difference in your life. And for, I think a lot of people, an easy way to get into it is like with food and making things that you normally would buy is like, can be really rewarding and help boost your confidence. So things like making your own yogurt and sauerkraut, like your own fermented foods, kombucha, if you're a kombucha drinker, you can save a fortune making your own sauerkraut and kombucha compared to buying it in a store. And it's pretty easy to do. And it's really mm -hmm. fun to kind of observe and be part of that fermentation process. Uh, and then if you want to push it a little farther, getting into gardening, raising your own chickens, uh, keeping bees, all those things don't require, really don't require a lot of work, but then all of a sudden you're like becoming a producer of, of food. Like you're, you're making something that keeps you and your family and neighbors alive so that's like a great way. And then once you start doing that, you'll just say, well, what else can I do? You know, what, what other things can I do to change? It's like you, you develop this, this in, in growing self, sense of self-efficacy and you just will want to raise the bar and keep on challenging yourself. Great. Great advice. I like it. Yeah, oh, yeah. And the other advice is to um, not look at mistakes as a bad thing. You should always try to do your best, but... You should also welcome mistakes 
as learning experiences and also great stories to tell your friends when you like screw up something really expensive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I agree. It's always a better story. If you, uh, you know, a few months or years after the fact, Hey, (laughs) yeah, in the moment, it's like, what the hell did I do wrong? This is terrible. Oh man. Exactly. We've all been there. You can find the resources mentioned during this episode at togetherworking.com slash the working together podcast, all one word. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast for more in-depth conversations with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers sure to inspire you and help you make an impact in your world. And don't forget to rate and review so that I can continue to bring you the social innovation goods. Finally, if you'd like to receive the weekly Working Together Review newsletter, where I share interesting finds and actionable insights about teamwork, facilitation skills, social innovation, cooperatives, behavioral economic strategy, political theory, and a whole bunch of other stuff, you can sign up at togetherworking.com.